Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. For this first week of Advent, we read Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, a text of in-between times, historically set between the first exile from Jerusalem and the full devastation of the second exile. We imagine the grief and confusion of the people in exile and try to take to heart Jeremiah's call to them. Live your life, even here, even now, right where you are. How do we accept the wildly imperfect present and use the fullness of our heart and our limited power in this moment without getting so comfortable in the present that we forget the greater underlying hope for the future? How can we exist in both worlds? This question resonates through traumatic moments that are societal and personal, past and present, and Jeremiah holds us in that tension. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm good. How are you? I am good. I find this season of the year a little, like, I think that I love this season of the year, like, between, like, I don't know, like Halloween and Christmas, like the fall time. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But I actually, like, when I live it every year, I'm like, this is kind of a stressful <laughs> period. The days get short. The time jumps back. The Yeah. It's dark really early. So yeah. I, I'm like, I love the fall. And then I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm struggling a little bit right now. I so that's kind of where I am I love the idea of the fall. I love watching movies about the fall. Yeah, I'm just starting to feel that, um, the darkness. Yeah. Feel it in my my kishkis, feel it in yeah. my bones. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Uh-huh. It's hard. I still don't know for sure where my kishkis are, but I think if I have them, I feel it there. Yeah, I think you do. Uh-huh. Yeah, wherever you feel it, those are your kishkis. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I hear that. I hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so speaking of the season, we are entering a, a more specific season within that Halloween to Christmas period. This is the first, we're coming into the first weekend of Advent. Yeah? Yeah. Do you have a calendar? Well, so like last year, my spouse gave me a friend's <laughs> uh, calendar that like has little mementos from the beloved television series Friends. It has no, <laughs> it, has, <laughs> it has nothing really whatsoever to do with Advent other than it like counts down the days till Christmas and then there's little things in there. But there's like a picture frame and then there's like little pictures of things. Um, wow. That was really specific. There's some Christmas ornaments in there. They're like, here's a Christmas ornament of a mug from, what's that place from called? From whatever Park. that coffee yeah, shop was. Yeah, I, have to, I watched Friends a lot, you know, during its heyday. I have to say it has not aged very well. It has not. Yeah. yeah. I feel bad mm-hmm. for thinking it's funny. Is kind of yeah, kind you of should. That's mm-hmm. my point. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's lots no, 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 of like shouldn't. a total lack of diversity. There's a lot of like a lot of like homophobic comic, jokes. That's homophobia. like the joke of every episode. Let's put a you know, let's cross gender lines. Ho ho ho. Yeah. Well, there's but a lot of stuff about like people's body size and body shaming yeah. and things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I will say it It does give me some hope that, you know, I complain all the time about what my kids are watching on TV yeah. now. And then I look back at what I was watching and I was like, oh, that was really not better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was probably worse. Yeah, yeah it was probably worse. Yeah, and we turned so, out mostly all right. So, uh, you uh, know, in those particular ways. So now I feel especially bad about my advent calendar, which I was already feeling kind of bad about because it's non-religious advent calendar. But now I'm like, oh, it's I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, but no, it's. It's all right. It's all right. I should get a, I is. should get one for reals. I think I think my kid has one. Uh or I guess I now I should say my kids have one which uh, which we which we follow. Anyway. So yeah, the season anyway. of advent for a Christian yeah. uh audience is uh, the time in which we are anticipating the arrival of Jesus at Christmas Eve. 
And so there's a four-week process of sort of building our way up to the nativity. And it is typically a season of kind of waiting and hopeful expectation, sort of a recognition that the world is not the way that maybe it should be or could be, but also sort of a tentative hope that there is the possibility of Jesus entering the world in the past Mm -hmm. and also again in the future and maybe even now uh, that brings a sense of hope about what's possible. So it's kind of an, it's an interesting period. I, I like Advent. It lasts until Christmas though. And so the culture like starts celebrating Christmas, <laughs> like unlike Halloween or definitely by Thanksgiving. Yeah. And in theory, liturgically, Christians are supposed to be sort of longing for Christmas until the 24th, at which point we celebrate for 12 days. But that's not the way that actually usually plays out culturally. And so there's some tension around like, how do we even how do we even celebrate like secular Christmas versus yeah. Christian Christmas and, and all these different things? Yeah, you know, people um, ask me sometimes as a Jewish person whether the season is hard for me because um, because of secular Christmas, really, yeah. because Christmas is you know such a big deal commercially more than yeah, anything else. That's right. And I've come to think, you know, in conversation with my friends who are who are people of faith in the church that it's harder in some ways to be a Christian who celebrates Christmas during this season precisely because of that. Like it, it is hard to um, parse out what is really sort of commercially motivated and what is, right. you know, really part of your faith life. And, and it kind of gets all swirled together. I think that's right. It is, it is complicated in various ways for all yeah. of us who are reflective <laughs> about yeah, the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly so. right. But here we are embarking on the season again. Yeah. And our text for today, you know, I hadn't really thought about this text in light specifically of Advent, but I'm going to have to add that lens into my thinking as we go. Yeah. We're reading from the book of Jeremiah from chapter 29. We're going to read starting in verse one, all the way through verse 14. The narrative lectionary takes out verses two and three. They just give some more historical context. So we're going to leave them in there for our purposes. So, so we will get some of the historical framing from adding those verses in, but before we even begin, what would you want your listeners to know about Jeremiah as a book, as a prophet, as a moment in time? Sure. Yeah. So last time we were in Isaiah, we were Mm -hmm. in the late part of the eighth century. We've jumped about a hundred years or so to the end of the seventh, beginning of the sixth century. Jeremiah's career was kind of a long one, actually. It it spanned from the reign of King Josiah, the great reformer, from 622 or thereabouts, um, all the way down to the beginning of the exile. Jeremiah himself is exiled in Egypt uh, with some Judahites who flee from the Babylonians into Egypt, and Jeremiah they take Jeremiah with them kind of under protest. So his career spans from the sort of very hopeful reform of Josiah into the beginning part of the exile, which is a very kind of traumatic moment, as you know, in the Israelite Jewish experience. This text that we're reading today is set sort of right at the beginning of the exile. There's actually two deportations in the exile, one in 597, in which a bunch of people are taken away, as we'll see. And then the big one, 586, when the temple is destroyed and more people taken away into exile. This text is set in between somewhere between 597 and 586. I think the um, the other thing to say about that is when we were in Isaiah, the big empire on the block was the Assyrian Empire. At this yeah. moment in Jeremiah's prophecy, where we've moved so that Babylon is now the dominant empire. Babylon is also in Mesopotamia. It's to the south of Assyria. It's right about where Baghdad is today is more or less where the city of Babylon was. And they come to power right at the end of the seventh century. And the great King Nebuchadnezzar is the Mm -hmm. king who is ruling Babylon at at the time that our text is set. So they change the whole face of international politics and Judah and the Jews get caught up in that sort of international transition. What else might you want to say about setting the stage for Jeremiah. 
I think all that context is really helpful. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, when we were reading Isaiah, the the sort of issue of the day had to do with there there was this united kingdom and then there was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Yeah. And the northern kingdom had fallen to um to the dominant powers. And so it was sort of like, what should this what should the southern kingdom be doing? Yeah. And so now the southern kingdom's facing the, you know, that same kind of that the weight of the dominant power has is starting to overtake them. And yeah. it's uh it's distressing. <laughs> it, is, it is very much so. The the book of Jeremiah causes is dealing with an issue, as you well know, which is basically how do we think about the fact that the empire is taking over this little thing that we have built, right? We're trying to be a faithful community to God, and here comes Babylon and destroying us, and we've got to make sense of that in some way or another. And so one of the ways that the biblical text gets at that is thinking through the Deuteronomistic theology, which is basically... If you are following God, you'll be blessed. And if you are not, if you're violating the covenant, you will be punished. And so when they get exiled, one of the responses is, well, we're being exiled because we're being punished for not following the covenant in Deuteronomy closely enough. Yeah. But it's a theological trauma as well as a political trauma to say, if God is God and we are now being dominated by someone else, like how do we even start to think about that? Yeah, I think that the levels of of trauma and sort of undoing of of how these folks understood the way the world worked yeah. <laughs> through this traumatic experience are so significant that they're 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 difficult to understand. I mean, we'll we'll try to pull them out sort of as we go, but the magnitude of this uh of this devastation is huge, is everywhere. Enormous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, should we read the first few verses and and see where that takes us? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So I am reading from the NJPS, as I usually do. We are in chapter 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter which the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the priests, the prophets, the rest of the elders of the exile community, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. After King Jehoiah, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and smiths had left Jerusalem. The letter was sent through Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah had dispatched to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I see why they left that out of the narrative. I know. That now. was that was a mouthful. <laughs> so that many names mouthful. in there. Yeah. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. So I feel like this is a moment to 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 talk more sort of about that about that background and this moment in yeah. history. And I think I want to ask you first. So so <laughs> it was your idea to add these verses two and three <laughs> yeah. in here. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit a little bit about why and, and what you think they add to the the picture that will help our listeners understand what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, maybe it doesn't help, but it paints a sort of a clearer picture, I think, of the historical situation, which is King Jeconiah, sometimes called Jehoiakim, was the king uh, between Josiah and, well, it's complicated in there. <laughs> there's, there's just a Jehoiakim and then there's Jehoiakim and <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. all that. But anyway, he's <laughs> the king. And uh, he, he resists Babylonian rule. And in 597, King Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army and attacks Jeconiah, takes him away into exile, and but leaves Jerusalem intact and leaves Judah intact and places his own king, who is Zedekiah. Like, he's a mm. Jew, he's an Israelite, but mm-hmm. he has been promoted to king by Nebuchadnezzar. So he's sort of a, a puppet king, so yeah. to speak. So what you've got in this moment is the ruling, the sort of legitimate rulers who were on the throne previously are now exiled away in Babylon. And also along with them have been taken, this text says the artisans and the smiths and some of the queen mother is there, some of the elders, priests, and prophets. So some of the sort of leading people, Mm -hmm. the upper crust, Mm -hmm. so to speak, 
of Judah have been taken away into the exile. Jeremiah is back still in Jerusalem. He was not deported. And so he's there in Jerusalem, writing from Jerusalem to the people who have been deported, who are in exile. And it's just a really interesting kind of moment in time where exile has sort of partially happened, right? There's the 597 piece. The rest of it's going to come in 587 or 586. We're in this sort of moment in between where it's like, what do we do? Someone who is not in exile writing to people who are in exile and trying to say to them, here's what here's what's coming next. Here's what you need to do. It's kind of yeah. an interesting framework for a, for a prophetic text. So as you were talking, I started thinking about the sort of the narratives that I know, the historical narratives of, of taking over a people, basically, sort of the process of breaking down a, a sovereign people. And the steps you're describing are are eerily still, you know, still things that happen yeah. that, you know, first, and isn't necessarily a total takeover of the government, but the elected leaders, well, I don't know if elected is quite the right word, the lawful yeah. <laughs> leaders are removed from power and someone else is put in place who is like, sort, you know, Zedekiah is a Jew, mm-hmm. but but it's sort of like a puppet. It's a little bit of a sham, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a yeah. puppet government. And then in particular, like the removal of the the elders and the priests and prophets and the artisans yeah. and the, you know, the, uh-huh. I don't know, the, the, the people who, who are leaders and who inspire the community and sort of remind them of who they are yeah. and what their best selves are capable of being. Those people are taken out first, maybe not in this huge dramatic destruction, but that is what paves the way for the dramatic destruction that that will come. Yeah, that's right. And that the way you put you put such a fine point on that, it kind of gave me chills a little bit. Yeah, this is the way that it empires. Is, it is a chilling operate. text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, you're exactly right that the people who are taken away are the legitimate rulers and then sort of the the opinion makers, right? The ones, people yeah. with cultural influence and economic influence, and specifically the ones who are not loyal to Babylon. So we imagine among the Jews at the time, there were people who thought we need to resist mm-hmm. Babylonian rule. And there were people who thought like Jeremiah, actually, we need to submit to Babylon. And the ones who got taken away were the ones who wanted to resist Babylonian rule. And the ones who were left were the were the loyalists right. to Babylon. Right. Right. And so, Which makes sense if, yeah, if Babylon's trying to, you know, yeah. yeah. So there are still artisans, there are still business people, there are still rulers, but they have been weeded out. So it's only the ones who are not going to cause mm. problems. And the reason Zedekiah is going to get deposed in another 10 years or whatever is because he finally decides to resist Babylon. And as soon mm-hmm. as he turns against them, then, then Babylon comes back and, and destroys him too. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's interesting. I know you spoke a little bit already about about our trying to put ourselves in the in the mindset of this moment in the the dismantling of of the community the way that it had been. Is there anything that I mean is there anything else we need to say about that? I mean in some ways I feel like there there's not enough that we can say about yeah. it. But as you pointed out quite rightly, the temple hasn't been destroyed right. yet. Mm-hmm. We're not at we're on our way down. Yeah. <laughs> But we're not there. Yeah. We're not all the way there yet. I mean, <laughs> these are not things that I had thought about until you started talking about this in ways that are, you're, you're really stirring up some stuff for me. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, you <laughs> really get the impression that maybe they thought this was as bad as it could get, right? Yeah. This thing has happened. They can't yet see what's going to come in 586. Like when we, when we look back at it, we're like, oh yeah, this is just the beginning. But when it was happening right. to them, they must have thought this is the end, right? This, how much worse could it get than the king was exiled along with the elites? And so, so that's an interesting moment and one that has resonances in other historical times too, where things get bad and you think that they're as bad as they can get and they get yet worse. Mm-hmm. And so to think about, you know, Jeremiah, I think, as we'll see, realizes that it could get worse. And he's trying to say, here's how we keep it from getting worse. Maybe other people in his sphere are thinking this is as bad as it gets. Mm-hmm. 
And so we're sort of in that slippery, slippery slope downward. Yeah. That was depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, and I'm thinking like, and we're at the beginning of Advent and mm. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just hold on to that, that question. I think that framing on this, unless something comes to you, what to say about that. I don't yeah, know. The Advent framing adds a whole layer to this uh, that is really interesting and really complicated. The way that I tend to get at it is to try to stay in the mindset of exile and then yeah. think about yeah. Advent through exile, which in some ways is a really interesting comparison. The period, the waiting period of Advent is parallel in some way to the waiting period of the exile. You you know there's an end. Here we are at the beginning. We can't necessarily see the end. The problem with liturgical expressions of it is that you can see the end, right? You're like, well, December 25th, there's yeah. the end, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, well, yeah. and I think in some ways that's the that's the problem with us reading the text now too, is that we know where this is going, yeah. whether it's to the good or to, you know, whether whether we see it as going towards the, the worst part that's coming mm-hmm. or the ultimate better part that's coming yeah. later, it's hard to sort of slow down and put ourselves in the moment of this text where, where they don't they don't know any of that. Yeah. Especially when you turn on the on the radio and you hear Mariah Carey singing, whatever. The, what is that song she sings all the time during Christmas? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, all I want is she sing "All I Want for Christmas." Yeah, is that's you? the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she yeah. does. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, "Oh, the exile! Like it's bad and it's going to get worse. <laughs> like it's just like it's such a cognitive dissonance, you know." Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on how you feel about Mariah Carey, I suppose. Okay, I have one other thing I have to say about Christmas carols, and then we <laughs> okay, can move yeah. on. Did you know, maybe you did know, that a lot of the like best, most classic Christmas songs are written by Jews. Yeah. Was it Irving Berlin who wrote White Christmas or Yeah. 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 And I have one theory I've heard about that is that because they're the best Christmas songs because they maintain this sense of like longing, like this Mm. waiting. Mm Mm-hmm. That, you know, maybe Jews felt sort of looking from the outside, looking in at sort of a dominant Christian culture. But it does in some ways like feel more, more Advent-y. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know why Mariah Carey is my go-to. I guess because you just hear that song all all the time these days. Yeah, it's a, it's a memorable song. (laughs) Especially memorable if you hear me singing it during karaoke, but you will not hear that. Oh, no. Very memorable. <laughs> I have. To, I really want to experience this now. We need to have a Bible Worm karaoke retreat where we just invite everybody someplace and we all sing karaoke all weekend. And then we have one of those like mind erasers, like the men <laughs> in black. Yeah. Nobody knows whatever yeah. happened. Okay, we're about to turn our attention to Jeremiah's message to the people who are in exile. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else we want to say about the people who are not yet in exile or what we imagine? You know, it's funny. Whenever I had thought about these two different exiles, I had always in my mind thought the first exile is like the elites. Yeah. And who cares about the elites? <laughs> yeah. You know? Although the way we're talking about it now is is very different than that. Do we have any, I don't know, do you have any sort of imagining of what it was like for the folks who were living in Jerusalem at this time? Or should we really best just turn our attention to the exiles as Jeremiah does? That's such an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, because the people who stayed are important, at least in the sense that Jeremiah is one of the people who stayed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so the question of like, what, what was that experience like to see all these other people get deported and yet here you still are living your life mm-hmm. and how do you, you know, and I don't really know what to say about that exactly. I mean, I guess you've got to experience some sense of relief. Maybe people who stayed behind, I don't know, maybe they thought themselves fortunate or maybe they thought themselves like superior, like God yeah. punished the bad ones and we're the good ones or something. Yeah. Jeremiah, if you read the the whole book of Jeremiah, he has a fairly clear sense that it's not that some people were better than others, but it's just that like God has only partially enacted what God mm. is capable of enacting. 
Mm-hmm. And so we better shape up. Like this is a warning sign to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not based on personal merit. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that was certainly the only attitude that you could imagine uh, among the among the people who stayed. What do you have? Th- when you imagine that, I, I don't. I don't know where we would get actual. We were, yeah, where we would get real <laughs> information like, about it's it. It's helpful I mean, to it kind could, of think about. Yeah, I feel like it, it could play out in a lot of ways. It could, and it, and for me, it depends how the people who are still there felt about the people that left. Like if yeah. there was strife within the power structures in the community as it was. Yeah. Did they did they like their influencers? Were they like, ha ha, now there's space for me to do whatever. Yeah, I guess that I would just be telling stories to try to try to figure out what it was. I think it's helpful just that exercise of imagination to realize that there probably were a diversity of responses. There yeah. were probably people who were traumatized by the experience. There were probably opportunistic people who saw mm-hmm. now that those folks are gone, we can succeed. Probably people mm-hmm. who thought they were superior. Probably people who felt great relief. You know. Yeah. I think it's easy just to imagine that every like all the Jews had one response to all the things. And that is never the case of any people in any circumstance. Right. There's always a diversity of experiences. And I think that's helpful just to kind of keep in mind as a, as a reader. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And this was a legitimately confusing time. Oh, my gosh. You know, everything yeah. is sort of being turned upside down so that people would have different interpretations of it and responses to it would, um, yeah. would make sense with my experience as a human. Yeah. The other thing that I think is so interesting about this setup for the text is that uh, Jeremiah's message to the exiles is delivered by a letter. We, we mm-hmm. tend to think of prophets as like standing mm, and holding forth. That's right. You know? And here Jeremiah is taking the time to write down, I mean, presumably through his scribe, uh, a letter to send to people. And I don't know what difference that makes exactly, but written prophecy as opposed to spoken prophecy Things you know people are going to be able to hold and like look over yeah. and like share. It's a different kind of thing. So just to keep that in mind. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, I think that it has a different kind of impact. That's really interesting to think about how the the sort of slowness of communication by letter and how, yeah. how that could impact the way someone receives yeah. the message. Hi, everyone. My name is Tom Harris, and I'm the pastor of Govins Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm a Bible Worm supporter at the virtual worm level. Every week, I get to begin my sermon preparation by listening to the Bible Worm episode for the upcoming text. I choose to listen to Bible Worm because the text-based interfaith dialogue between Bobby and Amy is so unique. I preach to a highly educated congregation who come to the text with diverse theological perspectives. So Bobby's and Amy's interfaith dialogue is a great primer. I also appreciate their passion for social justice and reading the text in light of contemporary social concerns. As a virtual worm supporter, I get to join Bobby and Amy and other pastors around the country for a monthly Zoom Bible study of upcoming texts before the episodes are recorded. This allows Amy and Bobby to be more in tune with some of the questions their listeners bring to the passage in their particular contexts. So I hope you'll consider becoming a supporter of Bible Worm. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. So thanks for listening. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so let's see um, what was in this letter. Let's do Picking up again at verse four. Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the whole community which I exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you and pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its prosperity, you shall prosper. Mm. I just, I, I love this and I find it fascinating. Yeah. What? I really want to know what, what you love and find fascinating about it. 
more than I want you to ask me a question about it. <laughs> <laughs> Turning the tables. I, when I imagine myself in exile and sort of removed from everything I know and removed from the power that I held in my previous community and removed, you know, maybe from loved ones. And my first thought is, is that I would like freeze, that I would sort of enter this period of mourning that, that felt paralyzing, that felt like a holding pattern. But I don't think, and, and so I, I think I would have expected Jeremiah's first words to be like something more like comfort ye, my people, yeah. like, you know, it's going to be okay. Or maybe something like Psalm 137 that was like, yeah. weep and wail for Jerusalem yeah. where you are no longer, you know, like you should, you should hold the torch for the thing that is lost to you. Yeah. And instead we get these instructions that are, <laughs> like what I, I we have this term in my household because I have teenagers, BBC, basic body care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, people, do the basic things. You yeah. know, you know what they are, <laughs> do them. Yeah. And I feel like the first imperative that they get here is like, lit, live your life. Yeah. You can, you can live here. Yeah. You can live put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And it starts with really the basics, like yeah. build a house. You're going to be here for a minute. Yeah. Don't just sit waiting and weeping. And then it sort of takes us from this, like build a house and live in it to like build a life and yeah. build a life that goes beyond your generation. Yeah. I don't know. It's lovely and startling to me in some ways, like, yeah. how long have they been? How long have they been there? You know, did they just get there? Yeah. I mean, they've been there less than 10 years. I don't, so I don't know exactly how oh, long. That's a pretty long time though. I mean, it could have been like two, two years. I don't think we have enough information. We don't have enough information. But it's between the time Jeconiah was deposed and the time Zedekiah is deposed. So somewhere between 597 and 587. Yeah. But I don't know how to narrow it down within there. But in any case, I mean, if you think about traumatic things that happened in 2011, like <laughs> that wasn't yeah. that long ago, right? So even the yeah. longest case is fairly recent in yeah. terms of lived experience. I love what you're saying about that. And to me, it's interesting that the, you know, the things that get put out, well, so the house, that's the first one, then the gardens, and then be fruitful and multiply. Like in some ways, this yeah. is a retelling of the Garden of Eden story or the creation stories anyway. The command in Genesis one, be fruitful and multiply, like that is sort of the core of what it, of what it is to be human, yeah. uh, is continue to, continue to be fertile, continue to produce the next generation. Like there, there is a life yet to be had. Yeah. And so in this, in this thing that seems like an ending, Jeremiah yeah. is talking about a beginning. Yeah. 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 It starts first. I love that connection to creation because it also you know, it starts with a, a garden built, you know, like first create fertility in the earth, you know, so that you'll have a food source and you can sustain yourself yeah. and then, and then expand beyond that. And there's fertility among yeah. the humans and, you know, an ability to sustain the people, not just yourself. Yeah. The back to basicsness of this, which I, which you emphasized, I think is really important. It's like, you could be trying to think about like complicated you know, schemes of how, like, how do we get out of this? Or yes. like, yes. you know, there's lots of things one could be doing. And Jeremiah's instruction is like, get back to the basics, live your life. It will become clear as you go, but you've got to yeah. start doing the things. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, so on the one hand, I love that advice. And on the other hand, I struggle with like, what does that mean for people who have actually experienced trauma, personal or communal it reminds me a little bit of right after 9-11 and yeah. George Bush was like, if you want to get back at those guys, go shopping. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, that's what, that's what we're going to do. But like, and maybe shopping is a, I don't know. Anyway, like the consumer America, yeah. whatever, but it felt a little trite to me. And so I go back and forth about whether Jeremiah is being profound here or whether he's being a little trite here, like not taking people's trauma seriously. 
Yeah. I don't, I don't come out. I don't know where to, I don't know how to come out there, but do you have any help for me? So for, for various reasons that are not worth going into, I'm, I'm currently taking a course in, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. Mm. And we just had a really cool lesson on radical acceptance, which I thought Mm. I understood until we had this lesson. (laughs) (laughs) And some of the things And so it was, I mean, on the face of it, it's like, of course, sure. Like that all makes sense, but it's hard to actually execute. Yeah. Like, like so many things in any kind of therapeutic model. But she, the teacher said radical, like in order to accept something that happens, two things. One, you're not accepting the future. Like no one can accept the future because the future is not true yet. Right. So So often when we feel like we can't accept what's happening in the moment, it's because we're extending it into Mm. what we think it will mean for later. Yeah. But accepting that something has happened or like the current situation you're in, you don't have to know the cause Mm. to accept the effect. You don't have to like it, but you, it, it forces you to accept to like try to see like what is your limited realm of power mm. within the current situation. Mm-hmm. And not to say like become passive, like you can still try to have it, an impact on the future, but you have to accept where you are and use the power that you have where you are, you know, and and not imagine that you have power to change something that has already happened or, you know, whatnot. And so that came into my mind reading this section of text because it really, I don't know, it is sort of a, this is happening. Yeah. This is where you are. Yeah. And, you know, Jeremiah will go on to talk about a time when that won't be true anymore. but, But for now, you only increase your suffering by refusing to engage in the basic care for yourself and your community. Mm. So you could, so sort of like you can, you're allowed to feel what you feel about it, but I don't know, like it's, you will reduce your suffering if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and caring for yourself and your people the best way you know how that's, that's how I'm and so that doesn't feel dismissive to me. It that does just not feels at all. I love that. Realistic. Yeah. I love that so much, Amy. That's so helpful to me because, I mean, like I said, this, this sometimes feels to me a little dismissive of people's experience, but you're helping me see that sort of, this is not saying everything is fine. This is mm-hmm. saying you're like, the thing that has happened Here to you, you is terrible, but mm-hmm. it is what has happened to you. And you, you got to do the next thing. And the next things are not complicated in this text. They're the they're like the basics yeah. of life. Find a place to live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Find a community to live with. Find a partner mm-hmm. if you can. Mm-hmm. So it's, it sort of narrowed the horizon a little bit and said, "These are the things right. in your control." Right. And I love right. the way that you focused on that. Like these are the things you actually have some power over. Instead of feeling like the world is only just happening to you, here are ways that you can claim whatever limited power you have right now and get and find a foothold to get to someplace else. I love that Amy so much. It does though. Like I feel like, especially the act of having children, that's kind of, that's like a big ask in terms of Mm -hmm. faith in this moment. Yeah. And in terms of like emotional well being in the moment, like it is hard to connect so intimately with another human when yeah. you are feeling hopeless or depressed. Yeah. And it's certainly hard to, I mean, they, it's hard to have faith that life will be worth living for your children. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I know lots of people, and I mean, my spouse and I probably are among them who trying to decide whether to have kids, like one of the, factors was like how much longer do we have Mm. that the earth is a viable place to live like it's crazy that we're having those kind of conversations but we really did think about that and you know in some ways deciding to have children which is not the only decision one could make in that circumstance for sure Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. a way of expressing some hope about the future and so yeah I mean that's and you're and you're right like that was that was a hard decision that that involved some like thinking through 
about what's possible. Yeah. The other thing I think with Jeremiah here is the other response one could have is to say, we're only in exile for a minute and we're going to get back home and it's going to be fine. So I'm just going to yes. wait until then to start my family. Yes. And Jeremiah seems, I mean, he's going to, he's going to give us a number here in a minute, but Jeremiah mm-hmm. has a sense that like, this is not a short thing. Right. And right. so get over Don't, that idea. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don't be in a holding pattern. Don't defer your time. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby, this last verse, yeah. I think it's the last verse. Verse Seek seven. Seek the mm-hmm. welfare. Is it seven? Yeah, verse seven. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you. Yeah. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this this is the city of the people who have exiled them? Is that the assumption that we should make? So like they, they have reason to be unhappy with these people. Oh, yeah. I mean, so this is saying, pray for the Babylonians who just attacked your homeland and carried you away into exile. Seek their well-being. Pray to God on their behalf. Yeah. So your enemy who has just traumatized you, pray for them and seek their welfare. Now, then why? Well, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So there's a little bit of utilitarianness to it, right? Yeah. When you're in this circumstance, the only way you're going to survive is for the community in which you find yourself to prosper. And so you need it to prosper so that you can prosper. So seek its prosperity. Right. On a practical level, I think that makes so much sense, right? This is the circumstance you find yourself in. If Babylon suffers and you are in exile in Babylon, your suffering is going to be so much more than if Babylon prospers while you're in exile. Yeah. On a more emotional, theological, personal level, like that is such a hard ask and maybe a little offensive to me (laughs) (laughs) to say like these people who did this terrible thing to you, you need to pray for their well-being. And you need to see your lot as thrown in with theirs. You are tied up together with them. And I just feel like that would be so counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. You know, you are absolutely from the situation you are pitted against one another mm-hmm. and this text is saying like you're gonna have to turn that around yeah you're gonna have to turn that around and it's that's a big ask mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we talk a lot about neighborliness on the podcast or, or at least i do <laughs> kind of incessantly and like what does it mean to live in a world in which you treat people as neighbors and not as enemies Mm-hmm. And to me, this is a new example of that in a really difficult way is to say even even the people who have caused you harm are ultimately your neighbors. Yeah. And this, we, we rise and fall as a community. Now, Jeremiah is going to complicate that in, a, in a, the next couple of sections when he starts talking about the end of Babylon. And so, you know, probably we need to not draw too firm a conclusion at this moment. But there is something about that. You are neighbor, you are neighbors even with. You are tied up together. Your your success or your failure is tied up together with the people among whom you live. Yeah. Even if they have not been good to you. Yeah. The other piece that's in just that little statement there is uh the city where I have sent you into exile. Yeah. And that's an important phrasing. Because it is clear that Jeremiah thinks that God is actually the one who is ultimately in charge of what Babylon has done. This is Jeremiah's theology. It's also Isaiah's theology about what God was doing with Assyria. God uses international powers as a way of prospering or punishing Israel. And so Jeremiah's theology is, we did some stuff wrong. God is punishing us. God sent Nebuchadnezzar to take us away into exile. And so that plays into this idea of seeking their welfare, I I think, that ultimately God is the one who has done this to you. It's not that Babylon has decided to do this to you. That is so important, Bobby. That is so important because our um, maybe gut instinct to see ourselves as pitted against the people, that runs directly sort of in the face of that and says, like, it's this is much bigger than that. Yeah. You know, that the Babylonians are sort of puppets in, <laughs> you know, in the hands of God and, or instruments maybe is a better word. 
Yeah. And so that, that little bit of distance, I think can open up some space for what's being asked here. Yeah. It also opens up a whole other complicated world in which God is in charge of international politics and (laughs) all the things that happen in the world happen ultimately because God is doing something. Yeah. But I don't know that we can get into that on a, and I don't think we're going to be able to solve that one today, but yes, that is a, it's a complex theology. We'd have to have a special, not just a special episode, but like a season on dealing with God and international politics. <laughs> yeah, you know, let's not do that sure. today. But uh, it is a it is part of Jeremiah's framing for what has happened. Is yeah, God. It is God who has done this thing. All right, we ready for the next couple verses? Yes. Okay. So picking up in verse eight, for thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Let not the prophets and diviners in your midst deceive you, and pay no heed to the dreams they dream. Hmm. For they prophesy to you in my name falsely. I did not send them, declares the Lord. I feel like you have some background for us here, Bobby. Do you? (laughs) Well, I mean, Jeremiah is an interesting book because there are forever contests between prophets in the book of Jeremiah. Sort Mm. of famously, the contest a few back in the earlier part of Jeremiah between Jeremiah and Hananiah. And Jeremiah is saying, look, God's going to put the yoke of Babylon on you. And Hananiah takes his yoke and breaks it and says, no, God's going to set us free. And so Jeremiah comes back with that iron yoke and says, now it's going to be even worse. So there's this sense <laughs> Sorry, in Jeremiah that, I mean, and in, in, in the Hebrew Bible in general, the prophets do not always prophesy rightly or even honestly. And sometimes prophets prophesy because they have things to gain or because it's in their political interests. Yeah. And so Jeremiah, all the way through his book, has been saying, God is going to punish us, and we need to bear the yoke of Babylon and just submit to Babylon and Mm -hmm. and take our Mm -hmm. lumps. And Mm -hmm. if we resist, it's going to get worse. And I think that's what's happening again here, is we envision that in Babylon there are prophets who are saying, we need to rise up and throw off our Babylonian overlords and restore ourselves in God's name. And Jeremiah is saying, you cannot do that. You're just going to make it worse for yourself. You need yeah. to do this other thing that I've said, which is pray for Babylon and seek its well-being. You you cannot try to resist this thing because God is punishing us. And so so that's interesting just to think about the like the internal dynamics of prophecy, competing prophecies. People do not know which prophecy is the right prophecy. Yeah. It's only later once you see how it turns out, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That you know who's a true prophet. Yeah. Like it's a really complicated situation. It's a very complicated situation in some ways, not so different than the world we live in now, which I wouldn't say, you know, related to prophecy and prophets, but how do you know what's actually true? Yeah. You know, and it, yeah, it's, um, Again, really relevant, I think, to our moment. And also, uh, yeah, I, 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 the question of who to trust and how to know who to trust and yeah. who is really speaking yeah. uh, the real word is eternal. To me. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because all of them and, uh, and all of the people that, at least the religious prophets are, that we see today are claiming to be on God's side, like God is on our side. Yeah. And so, you know, when you just read Jeremiah, you're like, well, of course Jeremiah is right because Jeremiah's in the Bible, <laughs> you know? Oh, sure. Right. But again, we're like, yeah, we're, we're yeah. looking back in the moment, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, you know, I, somewhere in the biblical text, I can't quite remember right now where it is, but it says, how do you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? Well, it's because the thing the true prophet says comes true. And you're like, well, <laughs> it doesn't help you in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You only know retrospectively, you're like, oh, listen to the wrong Listen to the wrong guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the only, the closest I can come is something like, you know, th- those who have in the past given good advice are likely to continue giving good advice. Those who have led you astray in the past are likely to continue leading you astray. Yeah. Jeremiah has had a long career by now and, and some of his prophecies have been very clearly on the nose. And so, so trust me, I think is what, is what he's saying. Yeah. All right, we ready for these last few verses? Yes. Okay, so picking up in verse 10. For thus said the Lord, 
When Babylon's 70 years are over, I will take note of you and I will fulfill to you my promise of favor to bring you back to this place. For I am mindful of the plans I have made concerning you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a hopeful future. When you call me and come and pray to me, I will give heed to you. You will search for me and find me if only you seek me wholeheartedly. I will be at hand for you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places to which I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have exiled you. Mm -hmm. So only here do we get this that sort of that balance that we implot that we sort of suggested in the first chunk. Yeah. This is temporary, yeah. but not that temporary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like 70 years in the biblical counting is almost two full generations, right? And so yeah. you who have been exiled are not gonna see the end of the exile. Yeah. It's gonna be your children, or your grandchildren, maybe your great grandchildren, 70 years from now, who are gonna see the end of the exile. And so that's, so this, you know, we're talking about the theme of waiting, but there is, there is a better thing that is coming, but it is not coming soon. Yeah. And so you're going to have to make do for a while, but this is not the new, it's not the new normal. It's the new temporary. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so there is hope, but it is a hope that is yet forestalled. Yeah. Yeah. And it holds on to this idea that, Jerusalem is still the center, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's not, I mean, I think part of what always like freaks me out in (laughs) reading these texts about the exile is the idea that everything that these folks believed about the way the world works seemed like it seems like it was just turned upside down. Like everything you thought was true wasn't. Yeah. Or, or fundamentally isn't anymore. Yeah. Like the truth you knew is broken. Yeah. That to me is more disorienting and frightening than, than most other things about the exile. Of course, I'm not the person who's having to like, you know, <laughs> endure the physical distress of it. Yeah. So maybe that's why. But, but this is saying like, that part of the truth is not broken. Jerusalem right. is, is still the center. Yeah. And you and you need to figure out how to make your life yeah. outside of the center in a way that's not so hyper focused on Jerusalem that you can't build a good and meaningful and you know intentional life where you are. Yeah, I love that. God is still God. Jerusalem is still Jerusalem. We are in a period of of waiting, and so live your life now in expectation of what of what is. It's not exactly what is yet to come. It is what is already is, but isn't present to us right at this moment. Yeah. Students of mine will often ask me, like, if God could come back now, why doesn't God come back now? And I'm like, this is is a great question, right? Why doesn't God set things right now? Yeah, Bobby, why not? (laughs) And this is the, I mean, this is the question of Advent, right? Like why, if, if, if Jesus is coming to restore the world to rightness, then why not today, Right. And it was the question of the egg, mm-hmm. like it's the question that Jeremiah is raising yes. right here. It's all, it is yeah. all the way through the tradition that there is a sense that right there, there is a right world that will be instantiated, but yeah. not right now. Yeah. For Jeremiah, it's because 70 years is about the right length for the people to be punished for the wrongdoing that they have done. Mm-hmm. There are other theologies that one can put together about that, but there is this perpetual sense uh, in both Jewish and Christian tradition, that the world is not quite right uh, and that it will be made right, but for whatever reason, th- that the time is not the time is not yet. Yeah. This that verse, sounds like Advent. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I, maybe I'm Adventing all, all over Jeremiah. No, no, know. no. No, I didn't mean it in like a, that sounds like it's imposed from Advent, but I, but I see the... Yeah. I see the connection. If you're trying to connect Jeremiah to Advent, like maybe there maybe there's a connection. Yeah. This verse 2911 is really trite out of context. <laughs> I hear it quoted all the time. Like it's, I think it's on yeah. bumper stickers. Surely yeah. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. Extracted from Jeremiah, that sounds like 
everything's fine. Nothing's ever going to be bad. Everything God does seems great. But we've set the context now of this is being uttered, being written Mm -hmm. to people living through intense displacement and trauma. And I, in that context, this is a really powerful verse. Like there are plans. This thing that is happening to you is not the end of the story. The ultimate end of the story is for your welfare and not for your harm. But that does not mean that this thing that is currently happening to you is not a terrible thing that is currently happening to you. That's right. So I love this verse in context, but it really irritates me the way it is often used. (laughs) Yeah. And God's plan for you may not, doesn't necessarily mean you're ever going to get to Jerusalem. Yeah. Like, the the first thing Jeremiah says is like you you need to settle down yeah. where you are. Yeah. It just takes me back to that sort of mindset of like accepting accepting what is and trying to again in a trite way the the phrase would be like make the best of it but you know that's not a very yeah. <laughs> meaningful <laughs> phrase to me. Yeah. But while still maintaining a sense of hope for the future but without sort of like deferring your good days, deferring your days until some hopeful period in the future. Like how do we live in the distress of now fully and completely and also hold on to that, that, that hope. Yeah. Yeah. The future tense of this section is so noticeable when we read it this way, like in Mm -hmm. 70 years, I will fulfill my promise. And in 70 years, when you search for me, you will find me. And if you seek me, I will let you find me. Is sort of saying, but but not right now, right? Yeah. So if you seek me right now, you know, like God is present, presumably, and God is listening, presumably, but God is not about to act. Yeah. And I, that's just, yeah. Uh, so there, there just is a time in which things are not going to get better. And so yeah. you've got to do the best you can to thrive in the meantime and hold out that hope. So that, yeah, I love that sort of, I don't know if I love it, but I think it is noticeable that kind of one foot in front of the other, build a life now, continue, don't despair, continue to hope, but mm-hmm. you should not have an expectation that things are going to be quickly set right. That's a hard place to live. It's really hard. And it's, and I think it's hard for us as readers to to really inhabit what that feels like. Because as yeah. you're saying, like it's in in the abstract, this all sounds fine. But to try to think of moments in our lives where where we realize that like the the life that we imagine for ourselves, that is, you know, whatever it is that is not happening to get a message from, from a prophet saying like, yeah, that's not going to happen for you. Yeah. But also to, yeah, to, to tie it in some ways to like, but you should have children and you should, life will continue and the world is not ending. And, you know, there will be some redemptive future, but you won't be there for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jeremiah. Okay, so in the face of all of this, these, <laughs> these conflicting messages, and in the face of the season, yeah, during which um, this is being this text is being brought to us, what rises to the top for you? My goodness, Amy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think in my own context, like who are my people in this text, and I think that the message in this text in the communities that I am a part of is a little bit about the fact that Babylon is not the ultimate answer. By which I mean, I feel like my people have become quite comfortable in Babylon. We have done the things that God says to do here, that Jeremiah says to do. We've built our houses, we've married people, we've had kids, we've built a life. And we are mostly, at least as a community, not the ones who are experiencing life in this moment as traumatic. Mm -hmm. That's a very broad statement. Um, 
meant on a sort of systemic level. I know that there are individuals yeah. who for whom life is quite traumatic, but I feel like my people are mostly comfortable where we are. We forget that we're in the exile. And part of the message of Jeremiah, the first part is you've got to get comfortable with the exile. The second part is don't get too comfortable with the exile. Mm. And to me, that's where the energy is in this text for my own place is this is a temporary thing, y'all. It is good to seek the prosperity of the world in which you are, to make a life there, to raise a family there, to imagine a future there. But this is not your place. This is not your time. These are not, this is not your future. Mm -hmm. uh, and God is coming to bring us back where, where we do belong. And, and you can't be so comfortable here that, that you, then you don't want to go. Yeah. I think this is a really helpful way of thinking about Advent too. And we were talking earlier about the commercialization of Christmas and the sort of, you know, the Babylonization of the holiday, which is not about celebrating how wonderful the current moment is, but Advent mm -hmm. and Christmas itself are about anticipating a revolution in which the world is set right. And we got to, we got to remember that. Like, I think this text points us to remembering that this is our place for 70 years. It is well for us to try to prosper as best we can, but there is a time that is coming. And, you know, as, as Christians, we believe that Christmas is the celebration of that time, both 2000 years ago and also a time yet to come when God enters the world in a different way to set the world right. Just as Jeremiah is saying, God is going to enter the world in 70 years to set things right at the end of the exile. And we've always got to be anticipating that time without getting too comfortable. That's kind of where my head goes. So how do we live in this in-between space, I think, yeah. is what this text is, yeah. is after. And yeah. not getting too comfortable in the in-betweens, I think, is where, is, where my, is where the rubber hits the road for me. Yeah. Gosh, I had so many thoughts while you were, while you were talking. That's such a rich, a rich answer that can be applied systemically and that can be applied personally and that can be applied, you know, in various religious contexts to various kinds of traumas that we, that we endure in our lives. I think that, I think I would just hook my final comments onto yeah. yours in a way. I feel like part of what you're pulling out is you know, going back to that, the DBT skills class that are still sort of floating around in my head at the moment. Well, yeah, two, two sort of related teachings. One is that, you know, when the teacher first introduced this idea of radical acceptance, someone said, what is the difference between that and just giving up? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, passivity and walking away from it. And that's where she really sort of focused on this idea of like, you're accepting the present, you're yeah. not accepting the future. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you can't influence the future really unless you accept the present. Mm. But, it's, but it's easy to, I, I don't know, it's, easy, it's surprisingly easy to get those two things confused. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like what does it mean to accept something and accept the bounds of our power and use, you know, do what we can versus saying, oh, well, I don't actually have, any power because I've accepted this situation. And so I wish sometimes that someone like Jeremiah would, well, I don't know if I really want to prophesy from <laughs> Jeremiah. That'd probably be yeah. bad. But but to sort of lay out those parameters, you know, and I can totally imagine what the other prophets' voices would feel like yeah. in my heart, you know, having someone say, no, fight. Yeah. You have to fight. And I think that question of knowing when to fight and when to accept some parameters and, and try to work within those is an impossible question and is every question. Like, yeah. I think that is the entire nature of discernment in our lives that can look different ways for different people. But that's, that's where I go back to the, like, still small voice and that, you mm. know— because there are so many voices in our world that will push us hard in one way or the other. Yeah. And there's no actual, we don't have any real way to know which one is. Yeah. No external thing that's going to tell us which one is the right thing. But yeah, this, this, this tension, I think systemically and personally is, is what it's all about. And uh, Jeremiah has given us some nice, 
framing around it. Yeah, the way you said that is so is like really sitting with me in an, in a complicated way. Because you know, at the end of the day, like we we do have to live our lives in some way. Like some of us have to stand in a pulpit on Sunday or in a lectern on Sunday and say something about this text. And 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 there is no external check, you know. <laughs> so like yeah. how do you how do you know? And I really love where you connected to the still small voice there and to say, you know, what this text at the end of the day is about is discerning authentically what God is doing in the world at the given moment. Mm-hmm. And you we can't go out there on our own uh, and just declare what we think is right, but finding ways to discern the work of God in the world, which I realize at some level is kind of just pushing off the question. But I think there, I think there is something to this idea. People discern correctly, people discern incorrectly, and figuring out how are we as individuals, how are we as communities going to yeah. discern what God is actually up to I myself have a tendency to just go with my gut. And uh, I think the advice of like, maybe you need to check your gut <laughs> with people you trust, the community you trust, and, and try to follow what God is up to instead of fighting against, against God's future. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've mentioned before in other conversations that sometimes that is exactly the role that we need our communities to play. Mm -hmm. We need some other people to be in conversation, people who have other pieces of the puzzle and other still small voices in their kishkis and (laughs) yeah, to help us, help us gut check. Like what are, what are you seeing here? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to make t-shirts that have the Bible worm logo and they say Bible worm, feel it in your kishkis. I like it. Yeah. I like that. Coming a worm soon. is like one big kishki. No, I don't actually know what's inside a worm. <laughs> That's is what it, I picture. Yeah. I picture in a worm. Anyway. Oh, another great conversation and one that I was like, how are we going to talk about yeah. this for an hour? No, I'm like, I want to talk about this more because I don't think I've got it quite figured out yet. That's a lot in there. It's a lot in there. Yeah. yeah. Well, next week, we will move into the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel. chapter 3. 37. Such a good chapter. Such a good chapter. All right, Amy. Well, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Me too. I hope y'all have a great week. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. And to our newest supporters, Aaron Frank, Roseanne Kaufman, Rebecca Larson, Jesse Lowry, and Jen Beansley. Join us again next week when we read Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. Until then, keep on digging.